get to be back at church and with church family. And Aaron and I are always really thankful for you all and our church family. Um, what was the question? Everyone keeps talking about the question. <laughs> the question is, why does it seem like God is hiding from us? Okay. All right. It's Luke 16. Yeah. Want me to do it? Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry, I just I kept, I've kept wondering. All right. Uh, well, we uh, we have been going through the Old Testament, and we're going to continue doing that today. Uh, today, we're going to try to get through um, the the major prophets. So that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Lamentations. So we're going to go through uh, those books today. And I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. What was that? I, we did cover. We did cover Nehemiah and Esther um, two weeks ago, three weeks. I, I don't even remember if it was a few or if it was the last one or the one before that. Um, no, he told us that Jeremiah. Oh, Nehemiah. Yeah, he did. Mm-hmm. I just thought I'd let you know how, how in I'm in and what's happening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, you supported your... Uh, your supported yeah. Well. <laughs> what, what we sort of did, I guess, that it kind of flows into... we were. If you remember, we talked about how the storyline flows historically, the Old Testament, and then there's books that comment on the story. Uh, we're now... Oh, no. <laughs> We we are now, so the prophets are going to comment on the story of the Old Testament. So if you remember, we finished finished by saying that the Old Testament ends on another different cliffhanger, cliffhanger saying um, that this can't be the end because... God's people are going to exile, and what's going to happen with his plan to to restore the world and to bring us back to Eden and make it even better than Eden? And so the prophets start to answer this question of, how is this all going to work out with exile happening, and how is God's plan going to continue? And so they sort of give commentary, and we'll get right into Isaiah. That's the first one we're going to look at. And the big picture of Isaiah is the word you should maybe associate with it is salvation. Isaiah goes with salvation. Isaiah explains uh, in exile what, how is God going to restore everything? What, what is the uh, actual way that he's going to work it out? And so Isaiah fleshes out the, the word actually gospel is first used, the Hebrew version of it, which becomes the Greek version, which we then get the English gospel from, uh, comes first in Isaiah chapter 40. And so it starts explaining what is the good news? What is the gospel? How does the gospel work? We get things like substitution and atonement and um, God's servant and all the way that he's going to carry through this salvation plan. So when you think Isaiah, think salvation. If you want to see kind of the Old Testament fleshing out of what salvation looks like, um, think Isaiah. Think Exodus and Isaiah. So uh Let's sort of run through this a little bit. The book is essentially a long, dramatic courtroom scene. 
a long dramatic courtroom scene, and God is putting his people on trial. You can see in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God's saying, all right, bring the witnesses in. Witnesses are, are heaven and earth, everything I've created, and let's see, let's hear this case between God and his people. Who's been faithful? Who has not been faithful? We know the people have been unfaithful and rebelled, and God has always been faithful. And so he's going to bring into this courtroom setting and say, basically, here, let me lay out all your sin, and let me also tell you that the way to make it right is through confession and repentance. The way to make it right is through confession and repentance. And if you go, uh, let's just look through, he, in 1 through 5, he's talking about, here's, here's what you've done, here's your sin, and gets, he gives glimpses of uh, how God's going to make it right. I'll mention that, but I just want to show you real quick. Um, he does say, Isaiah's writing right before uh, the exile happens, and in chapter 5, verse 13, Isaiah's singing a song in chapter 5, a courtroom song, uh, about how God's people are, well, here, let's just walk through it. He starts, Isaiah starts singing this song, and he basically says, tells a story about a vineyard, and this man plants a vineyard, a vine, and he cares for it, and he builds a tower to watch over it, and, uh, I, and he says, now, oh, inhabitant, well, here, he dug it, verse 2, he dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, he's taking such good care of this vine, but when he looked for it to yield grapes, it yielded wild grapes. Wild grapes is the idea of throw up. You eat it and you throw up. They're, they're disgusting. And he says, Now inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Who was there to do for my vineyard uh, that I had... What, what didn't I do for it? I did everything for it. And why did it do this? And the people come back and say, Yeah, this is really terrible. This is an outrage. And Isaiah basically turns and says, Yeah, that's you. Israel, you're the vine, and God's the one who planted it. And therefore, verse 13, my people go into exile. They're going back into exile for lack of knowledge. And I just wanted to show you real quick. Um, do you see where it says in verse 25, um, the anger of the Lord was kindled? And then it says, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. That stretched out his hand is used in Exodus over and over again and to refer back to Exodus of what God did to the Egyptians. Remember how awesome we saw it was that God fought for his people? Well, this is now going to say, because you've rebelled against me, now instead of stretching my hand out against the Egyptians, it's stretched out against you, Israel. And he, that's a repeated refrain. He stretched out his hand still he, over and over again in this chapter. And so we then see that... The last note before moving to chapter 6. You don't need to turn backwards, but I just want to mention in chapter 2, verse 8, it says, their land is filled with idols. So, courtroom scene, Israel is not looking good. God is in the right. Heavens and earth are called to, to witness it, and uh, things are not looking good. The people violated the covenant from Deuteronomy. Their land is filled with idols. They are like a planted vineyard, but their vomit fruit is what they produce. And then... Isaiah sees something. Most or all of you probably know this chapter, Isaiah 6, where he sees God seated on his throne, high and lifted up, and the angels are saying, what? Holy, holy, holy. And they say something. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
But we just read a few chapters before that the whole land was full of what? Idols. Isaiah is actually seeing a future event where God is saying, there will be a day when the earth is full of my glory. There will be a day when everything is made right. We know that God's always on the throne. And it's not saying he's not on the throne. But it's saying there's a day when everything will be made right and the land won't be full of idols. It will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's God's agenda. He's going to make it happen. And what we find out throughout the rest of the book and really throughout the next chapter, chapter 7, we start to see that the way God's going to make his glory fill the whole earth and make everything right is through this person called the servant. The servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord is sort of this mysterious... uh, You're not quite sure exactly who it is. You know, you find out more as the book goes on, we'll see. But you get this idea, and the first thing you find out, chapters 7 through 12 start to talk about this person, and we find out that... This person will be born of a virgin. We find that out in chapter 7. We also find out uh, in chapter 9, this is the one that we quote at Christmas all the time, that for to us a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God's going to carry out this plan to fill the earth with his glory through this one who's going to be born of a virgin, who is the king descended from David, and who's going to rule over his people. Make sense so far? Okay. So... Isaiah then uh, continues up to chapter 12, sort of fleshing out what does it look like when this king rules. And you start to see, especially in 11 and 12, this picture of, um, okay, remember when we talked about Solomon? And we said Solomon had all this amazing food on his table, and he had all these things that pointed back to Eden and said, this is the glimpse of what God's kingdom could look like. But then Solomon totally fails, right? Well, you start to see that this king, this servant, this kind of mysterious servant, Messiah person, He's going to do all of that and restore this kingdom such that even the animals, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, fattened calf and the lion, uh, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. This is where you get that the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. This will be little Nathan in the car seat crawling around with cobras. Creation is going to be totally restored under this king. There won't be any more death or hurting. or Well, we'll see it as we go on. Lots of the phrases that we know from Revelation actually are pulled from Isaiah um, about no more tears and no more pain or death. So, As we go on in the book, chapter 13 through, uh, through 27 and really all the way through 39, we're... We're going to skim through it, but what it's showing is it's going nation to nation. And it's saying God has a plan for history. And it's basically set up like a domino effect. And saying that once, once one domino falls, God is so in control of history that he controls every domino that falls throughout history, throughout every nation. And if domino one can fall, then that's going to work itself all the way through history and God's going to take care of his salvation plan through all of history with all the nations. He's in control and he's going to take care of it. A couple important points to hit instead of uh, completely skipping over them. I want to mention in chapter 19, this is really neat. What country put Israel into slavery? First time. What? Egypt. Uh, This is a trickier one. What country put them into slavery the second time? Sort of two answers. Uh, Syria. Assyria. Assyria. And then Babylon, but Assyria. 
what God says in chapter 19, starting, uh, let's start in verse, let's start in verse 19, and, and it's a little bit of a bigger chunk, that's okay. In that day, it's going to be a day, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. Uh, and the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Listen to this. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt near Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party, or will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts is blessing. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Did you say, whoa? Yes. God is a missionary God from day one. The people that enslaved his people and the people that took them off to exile, he's going to call them my people. And they're going to worship with Israel. That is really, really, really neat. Um, okay, I did want to also note, um, I'll just say this, you can read it later, but in chapters 24 and 25, you get some of the phrases where God talks about, we won't need a son anymore because he'll be our light. No more tears because he'll wipe away every tear. So that all comes originally from Isaiah and then Revelation draws on that. And what Isaiah is showing over and over again is this servant is going to carry out God's plan and he is going to restore everything. And that continues all the way to chap up to chapter 39. If you're flipping with me, go ahead and flip all the way over. And we keep getting this picture of God's in control of history. And in that control of history, he controls every nation, and he's going to bring his plan about. And then chapters 40 through 66 are among the very richest, most beautiful verses and chapters in the entire Bible. 40 through 66 is God saying, let me detail for you who the servant is, what he's going to do, and how I'm going to work salvation and undo this whole exile thing. And it is amazing. Comfort, comfort. The first verse in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And have you heard verse 3 before? A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Where have you heard that? John the Baptist says that when he comes on the scene. Because John's picking this up and saying, he's here. Now's the time that God's going to make everything right. Just a quick note. Uh, in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord. Do you see that's in all caps? That's, that's the name Yahweh for God. And we just, already in the Old Testament we know, this Messiah that's coming, he, he's not just a man. He's who? He's one with Yahweh. God himself is coming to make everything right. I mentioned that kind of the mysterious nature of the servant. Uh, in the Old Testament, often God will say, Behold, my servant Moses, my servant David, my servant, and a name. In chapter 42, you see, Behold, my servant, verse 1, and then no name. It's sort of just this mysterious, like, who, who is this guy? He, it's, it's very uh, epic. Like, there's this king that's unnamed coming out of the shadows, and then we see that, 
He's the one that God upholds. He's chosen. God delights in him and his spirit will be upon him. This is the one who's going to make it all right. And and let me keep going. Melchizedek? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple other notes and then, then we'll continue. Um, in chapter 50, I know I'm, I'm skipping a little forward here to 50. Uh, yeah, let's real quick in 49, just um, in 49 verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. This servant is called Israel. And what you find out in 49 and in 50 is that Jesus, this servant, he is the perfect Israelite. He's everything that Israel should have been, and he can perfectly represent them. And that means he can perfectly represent us. And that means that when he hangs on the cross... He can stand in our place. That's, that's why it's so important. Because he, as a royal king, can suffer on behalf of his people. And as the perfect royal king, he can suffer completely on behalf of his people. And what you see, the pinnacle of Isaiah, and, and sort of the heart of salvation is in 52 and 53. And this is where you find out, this servant person... Not only is he going to be born of a virgin, not only is he going to be God and man and, and perfectly uh, Yahweh in human form, not only is he going to come and rescue his people, but it talks about exactly how that's going to happen and that he's going to suffer. He's going to be um, not esteemed. We esteemed him not. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This is what the Jews could not comprehend with Jesus. What do you mean? You're, I, it's supposed to be like Solomon with the food and the people coming and the gold and everything, right? And, and Jesus says, you've totally missed it. I come to suffer this time. And what that suffering accomplishes, verses 4, 5, and 6, he's borne our grief, carried our sorrows. We thought, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But what was really happening is that he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's the pinnacle of what the servant is going to accomplish and how God's going to carry out his salvation plan. See, the gospel is, is the key, the linchpin, the hinge of all of history. That's how God brings about his plan through the man Jesus. And as you continue, you see the effects of what happens through the servant's sacrifice. Just even looking at the chapter headings. The eternal covenant of peace, uh, the compassion of Yahweh, salvation for foreigners. I'm, I'm sort of just reading the top chapter headings as you go forward. Um, and then just last couple notes here. Um, I know we spent a bit longer on Isaiah, but he's so central to understanding God's salvation. Uh, in, in 59 verses 1 and 2, Isaiah sort of sums up the problem. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. 
And he comes back around and he says, after all of showing you what God's plan is, how he's going to work it out, how the servant's going to accomplish it, the problem, Israel, and the problem, humanity, is not God, it's you. And it's sin. But, if you repent, if you turn, chapter 60 happens. Light has come. Lift up your eyes and see. Gather them all around. And it goes on to talk about how um, everything will be made right and beautiful if if repentance is if repentance is our heart attitude. And by the way, you finally get to chapter 61 after all of this and you read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know who says that? Jesus says that. That's why, that's the punch behind it. When he stands up and he reads that in the in the synagogue and then says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And they know what's come before that. This is Jesus saying, everything that you ever needed, wanted, dreamed of, I'm the servant that can accomplish that. Whoa. Wow. And he stops right in the middle of verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And they know what comes next. And the day of vengeance of our God. And we know that's what's coming in the future. Jesus came the first time to save and he comes the second time to judge and to rescue his people that are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, very last, uh, very last two notes on Isaiah quickly here. Um, really, really neat. Uh, at the end of this description of what's going to happen and how the servant can do all these things, the people respond. And in chapter 64 and verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's their prayer to God after hearing all this. Rip open the heavens and come down and do what you said. Well, if you flip over to the New Testament and you flip over to the book of Mark, you don't, you don't need to go there. You can if you want. But he, he quotes Isaiah 40. He says at the beginning of the gospel, as it is written, Isaiah, behold, I send my messenger before your face. He keys you. I'm thinking Isaiah here. Which chapter? Chapter 1. And as Jesus is being baptized, it says, He came up out of the water in verse 10 of chapter 1 of Mark. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. That is not the normal word that you would use. None of the other gospel writers use it. It's the word schizo, where we get schizophrenic from. The idea is literally what they say there. Heavens are being ripped open. And he's already told us that he's thinking through Isaiah's framework. He's saying that prayer is answered now in Jesus. The heavens are ripped open. God is coming down. And salvation is possible through repentance. That's awesome. Okay. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is is the book where God, through Jeremiah, comes to the people and says, the exile was not an overreaction. The exile was not... uh, God didn't do anything wrong in sending the people to exile. Jeremiah details what sin is, what sin looks like, and what the right response from God towards sin is. And so Jeremiah is, is a hard book in some senses because it's hard to look at our sin and what it, what it warrants from God. And So 
sort of the the theological point that's being made in Jeremiah is in light of exile, in light of God's judgment, in light of, for us who are believers, God's discipline, not his punishment, but his discipline, when, when we experience those things, even in our life, what Jeremiah is saying, we don't just need to know in our head that God is sovereign. We need to submit and, and willingly accept and live in God's discipline. And that's the best way to live and to uh, handle that situation. And so... Just uh, the word pictures are really strong in Jeremiah. In chapter two, he he, the Lord basically says, uh, "I remember the devotion of your youth." Verse two, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. Wilderness should make you think of the Exodus when he led them out in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. He's going to speak again now in verse 5. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? This is the heart of God towards sin. What, what wrong did they find? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, and land of drought and deep darkness, and a land that none passeth through, where no man dwells. I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land, and you made my heritage an abomination. He says, I, I did all these things for you, and you turned away from me. And he describes two evils that the people did, Chapter or verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. And this is a description of all sin. There's two evils involved in, in sin. They've forsaken me. There's the turning away. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then they've turned to other things. And hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so God, throughout the book basically repeats this same refrain of, you've, you've rejected me. Why have you rejected me? I've done you no wrong, and yet I will still take you back. He says this uh, clearly in chapter 3. Um, if a man divorces his wife, verse 1, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would a, would a man go back, after a woman uh, commits adultery with a man, will he go back to her? But the Lord throughout that chapter says, but, but I'll take you back. If you come back to me, I'll take you back. So the people go through. We're going to move uh, more quickly through this one, but um, people go through and they turn to different things. They, he says in chapter 5, just find one righteous guy and I won't judge you. And Jeremiah goes and looks and he can't find even a single one. And then, then in chapter 6 he says, You're, you don't listen to me. I, I've warned you over and over and over again. It's not unfair. It's not like this has come right out of the blue. I've sent my prophets to you. I've given you warning after warning, and you won't listen. Your, your eyes are blind. Your ears are deaf. You turn away. In chapter 7, he references uh, what seems to be a song that the people were singing about the temple, basically saying, um, singing a song saying, yeah, the temple will save us. The temple will save us. The temple, yeah, that we just if we have the temple, everything's good because that represents our relationship with God. And he says, no, that, that's going to be destroyed. That's going to go away. No more priest, no more prophet. It's, it's, it's all gone in exile. And you keep getting worse and worse. And you all have probably heard this quoted. The heart is 
desperately or deceitfully wicked, who can know it or understand it? That comes in Jeremiah, where he basically says sin is ultimately irrational. Think about it. If Satan was rational, he wouldn't be Satan. Satan, here is the most wonderful, beautiful God of the whole universe, source of all pleasure. Why would you ever turn over? It's, it, sin is ultimately irrational. And so Jeremiah shows that, that that's sort of the heart of sin. And just to, to uh, hit one other one, to put in context, you know the verse we quote all the time, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I have a pillow of that in my house. Uh, Dad gave me that pillow. And sometimes we laugh about it because in context, what Jeremiah is saying is, you're going into exile. It's going to be terrible. And your job is to basically go along with it, live godly lives in exile. Don't try to get out of it. This is God's plan because the Lord knows the plans he has for you. Now, are they good plans? Of course they're good plans. It says that they're good plans. Is this a good promise? Of course it's a good promise. But in context, it's really talking about the exile and how we need to, when God's discipline comes, submit and lovingly and joyfully say, yes, Lord, this is right. Take it in context, Andrew, then. When tough times come. Yeah. 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 That's when you put your head in the pillow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing we'll note from Jeremiah, um, in chapter 31, uh, he shows how despite your sinfulness, despite the fact that it's totally fair for God to send you into exile, it's totally fair for him to do everything he's doing, he's not going to give one ounce too much punishment or one ounce too little. Despite all of that, there is a new covenant coming and there is a day behold verse 31 the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah not like the covenant that i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant that they broke though i was their husband declares the lord for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and i will write it on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And we as Gentiles get in on this promise when we trust in Christ. When Jesus says, of, when we take communion, this is the blood of the covenant, or this is the blood of the new covenant, that we, we are in. We have his law written on our hearts. We have his spirit inside of us. Landon brought up a great question uh, a couple weeks ago. He said, uh, you know, you keep talking about going back to Eden, but what about, uh, isn't it going to be better than Eden? And the answer is, yeah, of course. Because God is so orchestrating all of history that it's moving exactly in the direction he wants it to go. And it is going to be better. We're going to have the spirit inside of us. Ezekiel, when we get to it, is going to talk all about that. We're going to have the spirit inside of us. God's presence is going to fill the whole earth. His glo- Well, he's present everywhere. But his glory will fill the whole earth in a, in a way that it's not manifested at this point. And it will be better than you. That is Jeremiah. Let's go to Lamentations. So Lamentations is written by Jeremiah as he's standing just outside the city of Jerusalem, looking into the main part of the city, most likely. He's looking into the main part of the city from a vantage point where you can see what's going on, you can hear what's happening, and he... The prophets have said exile is going to come. 
you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be wiped off the face of the land. You're going to be scattered. It's going to be horrible. If you repent, there's hope. But this is what's going to happen. And Jeremiah's whole message is, it's inevitable. It's coming. I know the plans I have for you. Submit to God. Trust him. Be holy in exile. And then Lamentations is the book where he mourns over Jerusalem as he's watching it be ravaged and destroyed and just completely taken apart. And the this is a really beautiful book. So it's an acrostic and it's a, uh, a chiasm, which is, chiasm means X, center is not as helpful, sandwich is more helpful, that's the bread, bread, lettuce, lettuce, hamburger meat. So a chiasm means part one and chapter five in Lamentations are near each other, two and four near each other, three is the center, three is the most important part, and chapter th- and, and then each um, acrostic means each line is A, B, C, D, E. They start with the next letter of the alphabet. Make sense? Yes? So chapter three then is actually tripled. You can see it in your turnover. Um, it's really beautiful. Chapter three, you notice one, two, three are grouped together. Three, four, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So it's A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 D, 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 R, and R. Center of the book, theologically and literally, is the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's what Jeremiah says while he watches Jerusalem, the temple, everything be destroyed. And that is why we sing the song, Great is Your Faithfulness, and why we can sing it when everything's going wrong in life. The worst things that happen, we know, God's not good just in spite of the fact that this is happening. God's actually good in it happening, as it happens, that it happened. He's good all the time, in every way. And so the book of Lamentations walks us through how to process horrible things and how to mourn and how to suffer and how to think about them and so the book sort of structures down uh as i talked about before and i just want to hit a few notes in here um in chapter one notice in verse 21 um i i mentioned this i think but in isaiah 40 the beginning of isaiah 40 starts out Comfort, comfort my people, right? There's, when, when the servant comes and makes everything right, there's going to be comfort. And this is picked up by Jeremiah when he says, They heard my groaning, verse 21 of chapter 1, yet there is no one to comfort me. There is, there is no comfort now. This is not the time of Isaiah 40. This is the time of exile. This is the time of pain. This is the time of suffering. And let's move right over to chapter 3. Um, This is really, 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 really fascinating. Chapter 3. Jeremiah's been talking this whole time. And in chapter 3, I am the man. That's odd. Who... Why, he, why is he repeating himself? Or why, This is just an odd construction of why he would say it. And then it gets odder when you start to realize he starts quoting a bunch of messianic psalms. Hmm. So who's Jeremiah talking as? He even... Look... I'm the man who's seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Huh. Rod and staff are supposed to comfort. Under the rod of his wrath, 
He's driven me and brought me into darkness. Even though I walk through the valley, in Hebrew it's the valley of deepest darkness. Hmm. So this shepherd is, his rod is a rod of wrath. He's driving me into darkness. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Hmm. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. That's Psalm 22. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. This is a reversal of the Messianic Psalms. And what most people think is, this is Jeremiah speaking as the Messiah. And what he's trying to tell the people is this. You think exile's bad, but guess what? You haven't actually taken the fullness of God's wrath, but there is one who will. There is one who will, who will have the reversal of Psalm 23 done to him, who will have the reversal of every good thing done to him. He will have, uh, if you keep reading, you see it, there's a bear lying away from me, a lion, he's he turned aside my steps. He's tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He's bent his bow and sent me as a target for his arrow. Verse 13. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I've become the laughing stock of all people, the object of their taunts. He's filled me with bitterness. He's sated me with wormwood. On and on of all these things, horrible things that are happening to the Messiah. And Je- Jeremiah in Lamentations is saying, this Messiah is the one who's going to bear everything. And that's what leads up to him then saying, the steadfast love of Yahweh never never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jesus is all through Lamentations, but chapter 3 in particular is sort of the pinnacle of what the Messiah, the servant, what Jesus will bear and do and accomplish. And that's why we can say, yeah, great is your faithfulness even in the horrible times. Okay, we are going to do Ezekiel in and Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, let me think for a second about the best way to do this. Let's do what we can today, and we'll do what we can next time. I think that'll be best. Um, we won't rush. Dan's off or Stan? I know, I know. I maybe I will. Maybe I will. I feel bad. Uh, everybody wants. Well, okay. Ezekiel. Ezekiel is about God's presence, and the people are asking this. Um, God sent us into exile, and does he still love us? Do we still have a relationship? Because he just made our relationship very long distance. He just sent us away, and the temple is gone. And is his plan going to take place? But at the heart of it, it's, what's, what's, do we still have a relationship with him, or are we done? Is it over? And Ezekiel comes in and says, all right. And he has what he has three sort of main visions that reveal three different things about what God is going to do. And what he's, the three visions represent is, number one, God is going to fill the whole earth with his, with his glory. God is going to make the whole earth back to like the Garden of Eden where we walked with him face to face. Number two, God is going to have a corporate uh, relationship with his people. How, I wrote this down probably with better wording. God's glory will fill the earth. God's glory will fill his people corporately as a whole. Think New Testament when Paul says that we are the temple, the church is the temple. But even more than that, God's glory will fill individuals. And so you have this threefold basically answer of, No, relationship isn't over. It's going to a whole new level. It's going to fill the whole earth. It's going to fill God's people corporately. And it's going to fill you individually. And we live in the age of the dawning of seeing that happen. We have the spirit inside of us. We, as the church collectively, are the temple of God where his spirit dwells. And one day we're going to see the whole earth filled with his glory. So... 
let's uh, let's do a just a quick. It's so neat. Uh, if you've read or listened to Ezekiel one, it is one of the weirdest Bible passages in the whole Bible. Uh, it is just crazy. You've got. Uh, we're gonna read it. Well, it, we might have to break Ezekiel into two. We'll do it maybe next week, but. As I looked, behold, verse 4, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another. While two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro from among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Okay, this is taking place, in, it says at verse 1, in the 30th year, so Ezekiel's in the 30th year, in the 4th month, on the 5th day of the month. So I was among the exiles. In the 30th year of a priest's life is when he would have been ordained. So this is likely, it seems most likely, Ezekiel's day that he would have been ordained, but he's out in exile. And so I would be feeling pretty down. Ah, I should have been a priest, it should have been my ordination day. And God shows up and gives him a vision, and this is what he's showing. You have this... Basically, it's a chariot throne with these sphere within a circle within a circle. It keeps going. I stopped reading partway through because we need to we need to finish it up. But the, you've got this like think of wheels that are spherical, not just round and two dimensional. Am I making sense? Uh, like ball wheel things. And the point is that they can move wherever they want without turning. And you've got language further down that talks about the firmament and the sky, and it describes God's throne to look like creation, actually to look like the temple. Because the whole question is, is our relationship still real? And the representation of relationship was the temple. And what God tells Ezekiel through this vision is, I have a mobile temple, basically. My presence goes everywhere. My presence is throughout the whole world. You can't get away from it. It's not going to go away. I go where you go. I'm going ahead of you. You're not going to escape me in a good way. My presence is everywhere. I'm going to fill the whole earth with my glory. I'm going to fill you with my glory. I'm going to fill my people with my glory. Let's stop there for today, and we'll do the rest of Ezekiel and Daniel next time, uh, and whatever we can of the minor prophets, and if we need the next time after that, we'll do it. Sounds good? Okay. Uh, Let me pray. Lord, thanks so much for um, the beauty and the depth and the complexity, but also the simpleness and um, clarity of what you've written to us. Thank you for um, 
Thank you that we can know you through what you've written. You are what we want, not uh, your word for its own sake, but so that we might know you and see you and and relish and cherish you. Um, Lord, even these difficult, confusing parts or the long, kind of sometimes boring parts in the prophets, Lord, give us wisdom and insight so that as we read them, they make sense. Uh, Give us um, uh, perseverance so that as we study, we, we, um, we learn more, we grow more, we know you more, and that leads us to love others and share your truth with those you put in our life. Amen.